space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to the next episode in our Star Trek film series, idea of course, courtesy of Darren, which will be discussed with the usual team of Graham, Jeff and Neil. Hi Darren, how are you doing? Doing very well, thank you. Living long and prospering. Excellent, excellent. So before we start, a big shout out to the Star Trek Appreciation Society on Facebook and Messenger, the place to go for your Star Trek chats and updates. Find them at Star Trek V, that's, I suppose that's Star Trek 5, dot director's cut. It's been very helpful to me in my research. Thanks, guys. So after the box office failure of Star Trek V, Paramount surprisingly agreed to one more film featuring the original cast, but with a restricted budget and it had to be out for the 25th anniversary. It was a send-off for the old guard. Actually, it's a bit like a drinking evening with Neil, who I would also suspect would drink something girly like Romulan ale, whatever that is. Anyway, the good news, it was a hit, and even had two Oscar nominations for makeup and sound effects editing. So let's find out if it was indeed a good send-off. So Darren, what were your thoughts when you first heard this film was being made with the original cast, especially after watching Star Trek V? I actually got excited. I mean, originally the first I heard of it was that they weren't going to actually do the original cast, that this was going to be a prequel as, as such, like a Star Trek Academy movie, uh, which I wasn't that keen, keen about at the time. But fortunately, the first I actually found out about this film is when I saw the trailer for it. And this was this absolutely got me hooked because the trailer is absolutely fantastic. Now, it's one of these trailers that unfortunately I think probably shows you too much. It's almost like an abbreviated version of the film, which I sort of, you know, don't always go with. But I got really excited about this for, for a number of reasons. One of them was it was a story very much about the Klingons. Now, we'd had the Klingons in the previous films, but they'd always come along almost like a convenient nuisance to the actual, the main plot. They were just basically thrown in there to be sort of like, you know, the, the, the villains that would just sort of come in and muck everything up. They weren't part of the main story. This one was going to be about the Klingons and the Federation. And what I loved as well is you could tell it was tying in a little bit to the um, Star Trek Next Generation timeline because it was going to be the Klingons and the Federation possibly trying to uh, come to a, a peaceful resolution to all their years of conflict. The thing that this really fitted in, when you could tell it was really about something, because from the trailer and from all the interviews that we were doing, this was very much about what was going on in the real world at the time. It was when we were getting glasnost, the Cold War seems to be coming to the end, and you could see all these little hints to that were in the build to this film. So yeah, even after this, the stench of Star Trek V, I could just tell from this that they were getting it right with this one, and I was really excited. I just want to go back to something you said in the beginning there, because you just stirred my memory. Star Trek Academy, didn't they think of having Michael J. Fox as Kirk? I don't recall that. It would not have surprised me. Do I do remember that the gist was going to be... Well, it's pretty much what we got for the, um, the Abrahams movie later on. It was yeah. going to be yes. how the crew all met, how they were at Starfleet, you know, so you would have had a younger cast to it and everything but um 
I don't remember that, but I, I do remember that the idea was that, you know, we were talking about doing a Star Trek Academy film. Okay. Uh, Neil, your thoughts when you first heard of this film? Probably, I might play in golf, I don't care. <laughs> I first heard of it when you said there was a Star Trek six and that we had to review it. That's about it, really. I had no idea it was a sixth, sixth film. Well, thank you for your valuable contribution <laughs> so, so my answer to that is terror fear apprehension <laughs> <laughs> oh god jeff's recommended it it's gonna be bad for me how bad can it be yeah graham oh, i was quite um, worried about going to see it in fact uh, it was 1991 and um, we had uh, two kids under the age of three so i was just glad to get out of the house to go go and watch something and my wife went with us so we just abandoned the children no. you left them at home alone yeah yeah just like the movie <laughs> just they're, they're fine they're under three how hard can it be no grandparents are wonderful we went to see this and i think we slept through most of it because i cannot remember actually seeing it at the cinema so there you go i was really pleased to see it again on the television i thought oh i remember bits of this but it's not all there i i had real trepidation about it to be honest and unlike darren my concerns were eased when i saw that trailer so the title is the undiscovered country now there's a lot of Shakespeare here, and obviously that's a line that comes from Hamlet, and it's part of the to-be or not-to-be soliloquy. And in terms of the soliloquy, it means death. We know now, after seeing it, Nicholas Meyer meant it as the future. Was that title and the use of it confusing, or did it concern you where the story might be going? So in other words, you've got Nicholas Meyer on board, and don't forget, he's already killed off one character who they brought back against his wishes, Hmm. Uh, you've got a title of The Undiscovered Country. Graham, I'll throw that at you. Well, yeah, it was a bit of a worry. I did um, Hamlet for O-Level, so I actually knew the um, the to-be or not-to-be speech inside out because we'd had it drummed into us. So I thought, hang on, what do they mean? Are they all going to die at the end? What's So I was quite pleased <laughs> with with the ending of this film. But, yeah, it played on my mind, if I remember correctly, because I remember having a discussion about it with our resident uh, Shakespearean expert, Mr. Connolly. Darren, what about you? Did that I, title concern you? No, because I never studied Hamlet, so I, <laughs> it, um, it, uh, <laughs> it, it, it didn't really register to me, except it was a, a cool-sounding title. I, I didn't really spend a lot of time re really thinking about it. it. Just to me, the, the first that I actually got it explained is actually when it gets explained in the film. So it, do, it didn't, like, you know, but I didn't go into worried about thinking or, or anything. I do remember some speculation with some, some of my friends who were, were into Star Trek at the time that they was going to get killed off in it and probably and, and probably Kirk. But, but I think that was just a little thing that we that we heard amongst ourselves that didn't come to pass. And probably because in the trailer, you actually see what appears to be Kurt getting disintegrated. So maybe that what was on our mind. The galaxy stands at a crossroads. This is the Starship Enterprise. We've been ordered to escort you to your meeting on Earth. Guess who's coming to dinner? I have so wanted to meet you, Captain. One warrior to another. Right. Neil. Well, I didn't think it was about death. I assumed it was about retirement. 
the Hamlet soliloquy. Yeah, sure, that's uh, about death and whether we should or should. It's, easy, it's easier to die than to uh, to live. Just about what the future holds. Um, without the Enterprise, it's time to consider their mortality, but not actually about death itself. And over to Graham. Yeah, so while the idea for the plot came from Leonard Nimoy, uh, the script was by Nicholas Meyer, who had an involvement in two other films, and Denny Martin Finn, who co-wrote with Meyer but knew nothing about Star Trek. Did that balance work? It, it was an interesting working relationship. They never actually worked together. They they had this new invention at the time called email, because Nicholas Meyer was making a film over in Europe. Finn would write during the day, send it over to Nicholas Meyer, who would get up and then work on it during his day, and they'd balance it back and forth. Now, I've complained a lot during this series about using writers that coming in knowing nothing about Star Trek. In this case, I think it is an exception because you had Nicholas Meyer who was steeped in the knowledge of the films, not so much the TV series. An example is when he wrote this and there's a double of Kirk in the film. He thought that was the first. He didn't realize there'd been an episode of the original series where there's a double of Kirk. So his knowledge of the films and the franchise and, and I hate this word, but I'm going to say it, the universe he'd set up. And then you've got Denny Martin Finn coming in, who's a character-based writer, bouncing off Maya, I thought really worked. And, and I think the way they've done this film, and we'll go on and talk about that in a moment, but, but I think the way they wrote this film so it transcends genres really works for me. Darren, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, to, to me, the, um, the the proof is in the end result, and it's you know they, they came up with a really good story, a really good script, and like Jeff says, that you know the way they having somebody who was new with Star Trek to someone coming in with who didn't know Star Trek but had fresh ideas and a fresh perspective on things. I, I think with that you get the um, the best of both worlds. To uh, little pun there for the uh, next generation uh, fans i think it you know it, it worked really well one of the things that i think we should have learned by by now from these films is that there's no real sort of like auteur as, as it was sort of you know controlling everything and those vision but they've all got a fluidity to them the uh, you know but the director changes things the cast have their say and they change things you know producers you know they, they come in they change. i think with these sort of films now and what we get with a lot of blockbusters later is that there is a more of a collaborative effort anyway even if you've got somebody who doesn't know star trek i think the other um, people involved will sort of you know bring them up to speed as it was what is it that you've got at the end result and as it worked? And, and to me, I think this is a, a, you know, a really good um, fast-paced story, but a very Star Trek epic epic story. Well, one thing I just want to, to add is that sometimes you can see in later films and in other films, in, in other franchises and stuff, sometimes you'll get somebody who knows the law, who is a real fan and everything, and it shows because they kind of lose themselves in this in the story. They, they start like getting um, overexcited and, and and almost like you know a, like a fan writing a story as opposed to someone writing you know the, the best story that they can. So I think that's always a danger that you have to be uh, you know aware of. And, and bringing somebody in who has, like, say, a fresh perspective is uh, you know I'm, I'm completely fine with that. But I also like the bit with Nicholas Meyer when he threw in uh, a little in joke that so he has. There's a hint in that film that Spock is a dis has a distant relation of Sherlock Holmes. Yes. And, and of course, the in-joke there is Nicholas Meyer's written three Sherlock Holmes books, the best one being 7% Solution. So I like that. And it's not laboured. 
So, you know, no, you, you, it's just a throwaway hope, line. Isn't it's it? just a throwaway line. Absolutely. And it's, uh, but it's so many layers to it. If you want to look at it. My first thought when he said, when he actually said that uh, he's a distant relative of Sherlock Holmes, I thought, oh, for goodness sake, why are they putting that in? But it is quite funny. I was actually, one of the things that struck me is that they'd finally got onto a role. I think Nimoy coming up with the idea and then Nicholas Meyer taking it and writing it and then bringing in Martin Finn as a fresh perspective. I think they, they'd nailed it. They'd got that sort of very Star Trek-y feel back again in this one. And it was well plotted and it was well paced. And I thought, oh, if they'd done this like three films earlier, it would the whole thing would have worked so much better. It was a you know final hurrah, but I thought they they'd actually nailed the format in this one quite a bit. The budget on this film was was capped, uh, which meant that a prologue in various locations uh, had to be dropped. That opening was eventually used by Finn in his Star Trek book, The Fearful Summons. Uh, Darren, would you have wanted to have seen that prologue to the film? The opening idea was that we'd see the crew all retired and all moved on from the Enterprise and, and spending their lives in various uh, mundane ways. So Kirk, for example, he'd be settled down with Carol Marcus, which is a little bit interesting. Uhura would be uh, running her own talk show. And then the idea is that they'd all be, um, that Sulu would be the one who would bring them all back for this like, one last mission and that they would all be glad to actually get back into the Enterprise. And I'm kind of glad that they didn't do this scene. Because I think it would have been really depressing to think about it, that the only fulfilment that these people had was the Enterprise and being in service, and that they couldn't get any meaningful lives apart from Starfleet. And and as it stands, if you you watch the film, you really do get the sense that in this one, they are ready. To, to walk away and um, there's a at the start when they're asking not you know what why they've been called up and um, even scotty who's the workaholic of the film he's the one who loves who hates your leave somebody says you know maybe they're uh, throwing us a retirement party and um, scotty says uh, suits me i've just bought a boat you know even he's ready to relax and, and kirk makes a mention that um you know we've done our bit for kieran country it's time for us to retire if you'd have had that scene at the start it would kind of make the ending feel depressing because it would have been, okay, they're all back and happy now because they're with the Enterprise. But then when the mission's over, they've got to go back to their, you know, the lives that they had at the start that they were, you know, not happy with. And so how it stands when it comes to the end and the, um, you know, it's sad that they're all going to be going their separate ways. There's also a sense of optimism because you think, you know, there's all, there's all these possibilities that they have for them now, that they're always great things that they'll be able to do along from Star Trek. You know, so personally, that, that scene at the start would probably have been like a nice little curiosity, but I actually think it would have um, hindered the actual, the sense of them sort of, you know, going on their separate ways. I think it would have cre- created a, um, for me, a more sour tone. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's really nailed it with that remark yes yeah you don't want to show them in retirement then pull them into the adventure then throw them back into something they didn't want yeah i agree jeff any thoughts on that yeah i mean i i back up what you're saying i'd add two further points to that one is this is a film about endings having a prologue like that would have taken you beyond the ending and, and pulling them back in as it is, it's laser focused on this being the last mission of the Enterprise and the last mission for this crew. 
So I think that's that's really important. And the second is this film is just under two hours in length, and I think it's really tight. Mm. Putting that prologue in would have expanded it, or they would have had to have lost something from later on in the film to keep the running time down. It just didn't need it. So let's talk about the plot, which I loved, actually. I thought it was a great plot. It's about endings. Um, an ending of the Cold War was happening outside, a crew uh, out of time. Their prejudice is a theme here, and we'll come back to that. It factors in the fall of the Soviet Union and has a Chernobyl uh, subplot. It also has an Agatha Christie style mystery in there and elements of the Manchurian Candidate. As a story, does that work or is it just too much? Jeff? I think it does work. And this is what I was saying earlier about genre hopping. You've got overarching, it's a political film. You know, it's it's political that it's referencing modern day events with the fall of, of, of Russia. Uh, and to be fair, I didn't pick up on the moon exploding as the Chernobyl subplot until I had a chat with Darren on this. So I didn't see that part of it. But I saw the the financial collapse of Russia certainly is seen through the Klingons within there. And we'll come back and do other things on that as we go down the line. But I do think, you know, you've got the Agatha Christie style, who's doing this. You've got the Manchurian candidate with the assassin up in the balcony towards the end of the film. I'll give you the best example on this, right? In Star Trek four, each person had their own little subplot. They went off and it was fascinating. It was interesting. They come back together this doesn't focus on that. This focuses on, okay, at this point, we're going to be a mystery thriller. On this point, we're going to be a courtroom drama. In this, we're going to be a prison escape thing. And every element of it fitted beautifully together. And I think that's what I really like about this film. So, yes, it does work. And Darren, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there is a lot in there, background and, and metaphors. So, for example, like we mentioned, the the Praxis being Chernobyl, but you've also got the neutral zone being disbanded, which is like the Berlin Wall coming down. You've got the ice planet is, is pretty much Siberia. You've got all these sort of meaning, but they're all sort of background so that you can get this sort of uh, this conspiracy theory plot and the Agatha Christie style story. And, and I, th- I think I love the, the conspiracy theory plot because it's so ingenious. It does make sense if you're watching you can spot the little clues as it goes along like you know for Valaris for example she's there when Kirk's um, admitting he hates Klingons so she must be the one recording it and she also she's the one who introduces the idea of having Romulan Ale at this banquet which obviously ties in later the plot does work I don't think story-wise that there's probably a little bit of clunky exposition where they're all sat around working you know, things out and the dialogue and the same things like, as you know, Mr. Chekhov, you can't fire a phaser without setting off the alarms. Little things like that. Why not simply vaporize them? Like this? At ease. As you know, Commander Chekhov, no one can fire an unauthorized phaser aboard a starship. I actually quite like how they do sit around and they're actually smart enough heroes to work everything out themselves, which isn't something you, you, you get a lot, to be honest. You know, the fact that they sort of, they take all the evidence and they work it out. I, I think that's quite ingenious, even, even though it may seem maybe a little contrived at times. The, the only thing I think is odd about the, the story is that the, the, the time frames don't really seem to add up. 
Um, if you follow the uh, the the, uh, the plot of Kirk and McCoy, from them getting captured and then they go to the trial and then they go to the planet where they have to escape, it seems to be a long period. Where at the same time, the uh, what happens on the Enterprise seems to go move quite fast. It always reminds me a bit of Empire Strikes Back when the um, Luke story and Hans um, the Hans Millennium Falcon crew story seems to be sort of like you know. At, at odds that a lot of time seems to have passed it doesn't seem to fit quite but you know aside from that i think it's you know a, a great you know a, a great moving on story it's it's you know I, I think it's good uh it's interesting that you say darren there about the ice planet being siberia it wasn't written as that it was written as a desert world by maya but what happened is uh, one of the studio producers looked at it and said well i'm so used to seeing that now in movies how about if we make it an ice world you know something colder and and that's sort of, so that actually came in by accident but it, it fits perfectly with the siberian and the russian sort of plotting that went on there i must admit i was really impressed <laughs> i thought mm. because i couldn't really remember it from the first time i saw it. and i sat down and i thought here we go and i'd had such a bad experience with five and i thought Oh no! Actually, oh yeah. How did they do that? And that hmm. central mystery got grabbed me, and I thought, oh, that's fun. And then they had they running around trying to find who were the traitors on the on the on the Enterprise, and I liked that as well. And I thought, yeah, this is this is quite quite interesting, and it's actually a fun little mystery. Plus, you've got the usual peril and threat for the captain, and I I just thought the whole thing was so well plotted. And again, that comes back to my point about having Nimoy come up with the idea and then having two other writers take the idea and run with it. I think it all just worked. Hmm. And, and and Kirk wasn't really in it, was it? I mean, there was a few Mickey-taking bits where he, he kisses the uh, beautiful woman who turns out to be a eight-foot ugly creature uh, a bloke and there's uh, we've all been there especially yeah and um and the fact that um there's a genuine fear that, that mccoy and um kirk are going to be killed yeah. until they're sent off to siberia and there's a way of getting out of it but kangaroo court has just convened and they are going to kill him for you know for the same reasons he want he hates klingons Another thing as well that I, I, I like about it is the fact that the, the Klingons have their own storyline going on. The disagreements that they have on the way to proceed, you've got the appeasers versus the military guys, which sort of mirrors what's going on with, with Star Trek. So so I, I like I like that as well. There's, um, when, you, when you look how much you've actually got in this film and still had you know time enough to do like a big battle at the end, I, I think I think it's a really, really impressive. So there's also a theme of racism and prejudice in this movie. Both Brock Peters and Nichelle Nichols had problems with certain lines. Does the theme work? Let's ask Jeff, because he's nice and grumpy. <laughs> um, yeah, I think he does. I, I, I was interested to read Brock Peters when he gave his initial speech out. They had to break that down to a number of different takes because he couldn't get the words out. Talk Clearly, it's talking about racism. And, of course, there's that classic line, guess who's coming to dinner, that in the film Chekhov says that yeah. Nichelle Nichols was going to say, but she refused to say it, said, no, there's racist undertones to that. Not going to do it. So, you know, they're uncomfortable. And I think that comes through Kirk's, I don't like Klingons, played by odd people, so I don't really want to have anything to do with them. Um, 
so I thought, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it definitely comes through for me. And Darren, what about the racism and wokeism of the uh, 1990s? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, the, the, I think that the line as well that Brock Peters, he, he didn't like the line about um, bringing them to their knees. And he didn't like the line about um, the Klingons being the alien trash of, of the, the universe. I mean, I, I, I respect the actors not wanting to do those lines. I think from a story point, it, adds, it would have had an interesting element. But in the 23rd century, because the idea in the Federation is, in as far as humanity is concerned, that racism and prejudice amongst humans is a thing of the past. And so it would, it would probably be, be a, interesting to see you know, black characters actually saying those lines, being so distached from centuries of of that. So that you know, but again, I understand why they would in the present day wouldn't want to say those those lines. I get that. I, I think the prejudice storyline really works because the the thing is, even though humanity in in this uh, storyline has put racism and prejudice behind them, there's still the problem with other cultures outside of them that don't share their um, value system and don't share their sort of enlightenment. So you are going to get those sorts of problems. And and I think it leads to a, a really interesting storyline, particularly around like the, the banquet scene that sort of, you know, descends into this, this argument because the, um, the Rosanna uh, DeSoto character, the Klingon, she actually calls out Chekhov for the language he's using when he's talking about human rights. She makes a comment that the Federation's a homo sapiens only club. And then when you actually look across the table, the only non-human there is, um, is Spock. So she's got, you know, she's got a point on, on this. And even in Next Generation, which I know a lot of it's probably because of sort of like, you know, makeup budgets and things like that. The Starfleet always seems to be human characters. There's very few sort of, um, you know, aliens, uh, you know, a, a, a alien species in there. So, you know, there is a sort of the point. I like that the, the Federation are not sort of uh, this holier than, than thou, but they still have sort of a problem. So I know this goes against Gene Roddenberry's philosophy, but I, I think it makes uh, well... I, I was just about to say that. Yeah, yeah but, Roddenberry but it, hated the, the, the whole thing. Yeah, but it but it makes for 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 interesting drama, and and you know, and let let's face it, you know, the, the humans have been at war, if not all out war, at conflict with the Klingons for so many years, and this is the first sort of meeting that we get about peace. You're going to have some prejudice. I mean, there's like the little the, the little scene where the uh, the two security. Uh, Men's are sort of talking about the Klingons and saying, you know, what about that smell? And you know, all, all the Mecha line only top of the line models can walk and talk. For me, that there is tension between the two cultures. It wouldn't have worked if you were to have the Federation being all peaceful and respectful. And you know, the, the you've got to have it on both sides for this to sort of work to have that sort of tension. So, so yeah, I think it is. And Star Trek has always worked you know in particularly the original tv show so it's worked best when it's commenting on today's culture and so you know to, to me i think it raises questions on the sort of 20th and indeed 21st century culture so so for me it is a storyline that, that, that works and it gives a little bit of, of bite to it and it's about something it's about prejudice and working with other cultures even if they're they're, they're not exactly share all of your values i, I think it's a I think it's an interesting storyline, even if, you know, I, I realise Roddenberry didn't like it. But, yeah, I think it's a good storyline. So let's talk casting. The old team back together for one last hurrah. So, Darren, I'll start with you. How do their performances here compare when they started out on this movie journey with Star Trek The Motion Picture? There's a lot more warmth 
it, it's a lot more relaxed and, and comfortable. There's a lot more sort of banter between them. I, I think you know that that's pretty much evident. When you watch the first one, it's very cold and, and stiff. I mean, a lot of the um, a lot of the characters like Ho and Sul and they're, they're basically just there to be the recognisable crew from the series. They don't really have a lot of personality in there. So but by now they've grown into these roles. I think part of that is as well what audiences want, you know, what, what they would be willing to accept in the 70s, as opposed to what people want to see, 90s viewers want to see, but they want to see a, a little bit of humour, they want to see a bit of sort of character and everything. Well, one other thing that really stands out is earlier on where they're setting up from space dock and Valaris tries to correct Kirk on the right procedure and Ahura kind of just smiles and like shakes her head and uh, you know and it's just this little thing that they've got to know each other so well I just think they, they come across as a lot more human and a lot more there's me going again with the uh, with the racist interspecies talk um there's a there's a lot more Shame on you. Yes, shame on me. Um, cancel me. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, a, there's just there's just a lot more life in there. It's for Star Trek people that we've come to come to know and love. There's some lovely little bits, as Darren said, one of them, when uh, she, King Cottrell says, you know, processes and everything. And they, they, it, there's loads of little bits and pieces like that, which is terrific. And I thought that. And, and also, I think that this is the last one that I think they were quite relaxed because it was the last one. They knew it wasn't going to be a, a, just another one, just another one. I thought this was... Um... Really, really great, and and as I said, it was a shame that they had to wait to the last one to get it all so right. Um, hmm. I thought, yeah, the, the characters were definitely back in their old mold. They got back to the um, to the original first series. They it felt you had fully returned to the original series, and it was and it was just a shame that this was the last one. The director uh, Meyer just managed to get some great performances out of them and i really enjoyed it i just can't praise this film enough it was so well done Uh, and after all of the messing about in all the other films and we had the notable standouts but this was just so good okay let's just delve into those some of those characters a little bit more now william shatner his character goes on the biggest journey which you can probably say for most of the films. Yeah. It starts with his hatred of Klingons. Don't believe them. Don't trust them. To eventually become instrumental in saving Klingon lives. In contrast, Spock is fairly laid back throughout. Was that believable, Graham? Oh, I had a wee bit of a problem with Spock, yeah, in this film. He did seem a wee bit detached. I know he's been through his own incredible story arc, dying and being reborn and all of that sort of stuff and, and living for a while inside of uh, McCoy. But even with all of that sort of stuff, he did seem a little bit detached. And, I, and I, I'm really not sure why. And maybe Darren can enlighten me on that. But he didn't seem to play that great a role. And also Scotty was a bit less involved. And it seemed to be very much a Kirk and McCoy vehicle for most of this story so um and they are two of the lead characters and the plot was interesting so it all balanced out in the end but i did think that uh, yeah nimoy did take his foot off the accelerator on this one and just relax back into it and also he he seemed to spend most of his time on the puzzle because obviously he is related to uh, sherlock holmes 
But um, yeah, while all the action bits were done by the rest of the crew. But he also makes the greatest mistake of the movie because is that scene near the beginning where uh, Valeris is almost trying to persuade him to come over to the to the plot mm. and Spock thinking, nah, I've got this sorted, let it all play out and misses the blindingly obvious. <laughs> so he became more like Watson than Holmes at that point in time. Quite honest. <laughs> That's true. Um, Neil? Obviously, Kirk is on the uh, is the biggest journey. This whole hatred of the Klingons, he has a reason for it. Spock, I under, kind of understood this laid-backness. He didn't want... I, I, I got the yeah, feeling... He that, more than anybody. Yeah. he got. I got the feeling that he was thinking, well, Kirk will do the right thing in the end. He will, yes. He has all these prejudices. He can't see beyond them. There is an answer in there, and I'm sure Kirk will find it. And Kim Cattrall's character, he had thought um, maybe fears about her or, or suspicions about her, and he was constantly trying to think through what was happening, why it was happening, and what she was up to. He was concentrating on that. I disagree with all you all, to be honest, because the... Yeah. the, the um... That's all right. The, the Kirk and Spock relationship is this film. This is one of my favorite parts of the film because you've got Kirk and Spock, which is from, from the very first Star Trek, is, is the relationship that the whole you know, series is, is based on. You know, they're, they're such great friends and everything. And in this one, they're sort of torn, torn apart. But that scene early on where they're, where it's just them two left in the boardroom and there's that massive table between them. They're so, you know, it's, it's so far away. And that little confrontation they have where Kirk's obviously ang angry at Spock and Spock in this one, he's the compassionate one, which I really like. And we've seen this before in Star Trek Four. we saw it, when everyone wanted basically just to take the whales and, and he was the one that was sort of like, no, we've got to ask for their permission otherwise we're as sort of bad as the people who who use them in this century you know even though he's sort of is is lot is logical and he's a vulcan he still he still cares about others you know feelings and lives and he's he's for one that is trying to but needs wants to use the opportunity of of the klingons going for peace and that moment where they're having this um back and forth like with kirk and, and it's incidentally with this one kirk reminds me of john wayne in the searchers because in that film you've got this like you've got this all American hero making these sort of like you know racist and nasty comments and everything. It's quite shocking. And in this one you've got Kirk who is basically like you know the, the hero that you've you've gone through, and he's saying things like "they're animals, let them die," and he says it with such venom. It's absolutely shocking, but it works because, like I say, you've seen everything he's gone through. You've seen the fact that he lost his son to Klingons, and so he can't put this sort of anger. And he's one of the people that has to realise that he, you know, for, for the universe to move on, to find peace, he's got to sort of come to terms with these things. And I think it's an, an amazing storyline. But I don't think um, Spock's laid back at, at all. I think he's the one that's, that's, that's fighting for peace. He's, you know, he keeps uh, interrupting Kirk at the uh, at the banquet and, and trying to sort of speak for speak for him because he doesn't trust that Kirk's going to say the, the, the right things. I, I don't think he's laid back. I think he's not part of the um, the adventure storyline as such, but he is the one. To, he's the one that sort of is driving the sort of you know the peace talks. You know, story. You can see that where the um, the the Klingons have a little bit more respect for him than Kirk in there but you know because he's seen as like you know the appeaser and and it's a good conflict that you've got the two contrasts 
and I think it's also the um, it's interesting that, that the naivety that he shows that he is suckered in by Valeris because it's the logical way for this peace thing to happen. He doesn't quite get that other people won't see it in that way, that, that people will still cling to their prejudice. But from the logical point of view, the, the whole sort of storyline, you know, it works, you know, that peace and the two cultures being able to prosper is a logical thing. But he forgets that, you know, that the Klingon military and the Federation military don't work on logic. They're working on emotion. So I think there's, there's so much actually in there. I don't think he's laid back at all. I think he's he's got a, a role in the story. And I think he's, you know, some of the stuff that happens, I mean, the, the scene later when Valerius has been revealed to be the traitor and he's obviously hurt. And he's 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 basically you know gone into seclusion in his room and everything, and he's sort of you know and Kirk and him have this sort of this chat where they, they come to an understanding, and they both realise that both of them have sort of like you know made mistakes, and both of them it's their time for a new generation as it wants to to come along. I, I think I think there's a there's a lot that, that the spot's got going on in there. I I really but like I say, the whole Spock and Kirk narrative in this is probably one of my favourite thing, things in, in the movie. I think my problem is that it starts with Spock being very eloquent about his reasoning for peace and the logic that uh, th- that um, dictates what he must do going forward, and the fact that the the Klingon Empire will actually die out if they don't help them. So there's this sort of res- rescue point. Uh, so you have that at the start. So he's he's an ambassador, and then suddenly he's on the, back on the starship, and you think, okay, well, that's fine. He's going off to talk, meet the Klingons, and that sort of thing. And then you have the dinner, but then he disappears almost, and he does become a bit of a, a sort of a laid-back hippie. You know, he's in his room uh, snorting whatever Vulcan marijuana that is in that scene, and then only at the end does he does he come out. So yes, I understand that there's a... but. Just from a story arc, he seems to disappear in, in fully in the second act of this, and, and and the Kirk adventure scene takes over. So I did think, you know, he wasn't so involved in the second act and and the start of the third act, and coming out the end. Obviously, it 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 all comes right, and he's proved to be correct at the end, uh, you know. So, but I just thought it was a little bit. He was sort of sidelined for a while. Maybe laid back is not the right words, but he did seem to be. In the, the in the plot, he did seem to be sidelined. This is what I like about these little discussions. We all have different points of view. Mm. So let's move on to another character. Now, Darren, Sulu is the only one that seems to have been promoted in a time that's probably about three years plus in terms of the, the time between the last film to this. And I'm concerned that he was the only one promoted. Did the appraisals of the others not come up to standard? <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Well, well um, it all goes... To, to what was going on behind the scenes in the making of the, the film. Um, George Takai basically didn't want to come back. I mean, to be honest, he didn't want to come back for Star Trek V. We had to really struggle to get him on for that. It's well known that of all, all the cast, him and Shatner did not get on. And, and Shatner had problems with a lot of the cast, but there seems to be something more in with, even to this day, Takai is, is basically when he does interviews, he, he doesn't have a lot of nice things to say for for Shatner. And, he, and, he, and somebody asked him if they'd um, put things to bed recently in an interview, and he said, "No, they've, they've reached a, an understanding, but they've not sort of, you know, they've not buried the hatchet or anything." Him being the captain will, will make you a captain of the Excelsior. We, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a character more to do. That that was kind of to get him back on board, you know. So so that's so that's what that was. Um, 
uh, was over. Incidentally, Shatner didn't like that. He, his argument was that because this is the last one, um, all the crew should be together in the same room for the, for the last send-off. Uh, whereas if Takai was basically on his own ship, he'd be distancing. I, I personally think it's probably more likely that Shatner didn't want somebody else to be the captain. You know, but uh, <laughs> as it, as it stands, Takai still wasn't happy with what actually happened. He, he felt that a lot of the cast, he, he felt everyone should have got a little bit of a send-off, something to, to do. You know, he, he felt that her and Scotty, for example, didn't, you know, they didn't get their, their moment to shine that, that, that they were due. The interesting thing, actually, a bit of trivia is originally, Sulu and the Excelsior, they were to have a bigger role in, in the climax when it comes to the, the Enterprise's aid. Because if you remember early on, the, um, the mission that they were on, they were um, mapping uh, gaseous anomalies. They were going to have the equipment on Excelsior that they could put onto a torpedo to basically find the Klingon ship. But Shatner nixed this. He felt that, you know, it, you know, it should be the Enterprise that, that wins the day. And so that's why you get that weird little sort of dialogue line from Mahoe that says, hey, what about all that sort of um, uh, gas equipment we've got downstairs? You know, why don't we use that? It's it's kind of, you know, so I think, I think that's a shame because it basically was set up in the first act. And then it was sort of was that a little bit clunky. So it would have basically, you know, made sense for them to have the equipment to be, you know, and it would actually have made sense for, you know, because as it stands, they don't really get, a, they arrive to save, to, to help out, but they don't really get to do a lot. Whereas if they'd actually, you could have had something where the Enterprise was the ones that came up with the idea, but it was um, uh, the Excelsior that had the equipment to pull it off. But at least we did get a little bit of Spock and McCoy getting to work together on the final thing which i think is a nice little send-off as well particularly because uh mccoy gets to say fascinating which i think is the first time he says you know <laughs> which is nominated so that to me was like a little nice little uh, nod to their relationship as well so at least they got to have a little bit of an interaction uh, in, in the final um, the final film graham do you think sulu was over promoted no stardate 9521.6 captain's log uss excelsior Sulu commanding. I thought having two vessels working together in tandem against the one rogue Klingon was quite a nice metaphor, you know, for teamwork versus the um, the rogue element. And I just thought that worked well. And I, I've always liked Sulu. I always thought he was a great character. And I like George Takai. Anyway, so I, I thought it was great that he got his own ship. And, and well done him. <laughs> mm. Okay, Neil. Yeah, I think they they really needed a second ship in there, um, and the convenience factor came in as well. But uh, yeah, yeah, Sulu did. Uh, Su- I don't think the others wanted to. I assumed the others, in reality, wouldn't have wanted to leave the Enterprise. So, Darren, this is where your knowledge now comes in. So, Sulu was in charge of the Excelsior, which had come up in earlier films. Mm. So what what other elements or characters were coming back in this last one that have been set up in perhaps earlier Star Trek movies? Sarek is uh, briefly back. Um, I've I've got to say a a correction as well. I actually, um, when we did the Star Trek 4 one, I said that that was his last appearance in the movies and I'd forgot about this little one here. So so Sarek returns. Janice Rand it was from the original TV series, and we've seen her in a, showing up in a couple of the films. Um, she's um, seen on the bridge of the uh, Excelsior. She was a, a Star Trek original that had to 
leave the show for reasons, shall we say. Brock Peters, uh, as Admiral Cartwright, we'd already seen him in Star Trek Four, so that was like a nice little bit of continuity. And also the Klingon ambassador that we uh, that we see in this, he'd also been in Star Trek. So, so again, just a, you know, a little bit of sort of like a continuity. The really cool one uh, for me, though, is Michael Dunn, who plays Worf on um, Star Trek: The Next Generation. Um, yeah. He's in this. He plays the um, the Klingon lawyer who defends Kirk and McCoy, and he's actually playing Worf's grandfather in this one, which I think is a is, is a is a, is a is a really cool cool little um, touch. So that and again, that's a little sort of nod to um, Star Trek: The Next Generation, and sort of sets up his um, his family having sort of a um, sort of like a shall we say a, a more sort of appeasing, honourable background. As it was, so uh, yes, they're the ones that I um, I spotted uh, in there. Graham, yeah, I just thought it was great. To, they, they'd obviously thought about how they were going to populate both the the ships, and nodding back to the original series, and I just loved it. It was just like, oh, that's her, <laughs> and oh, I know him. Yeah, it was a nice bit of fan service before we ever had such a thing as fan service. Well, I, I've got one to add in the excellent John Shook who appeared at the beginning of Star Trek IV as the Klingon demanding Kirk's head. That makes a reappearance here as well. Doesn't do much in this film, but still such a great actor. I'll watch yeah. him in anything. But that's when I, when I said the Klingon ambassador. That's, that's what oh, I right, sorry. To, yeah. sorry, I didn't I did use the actor's yeah, name. But yeah, that's the, um, yeah. Okay, no problem. He's a great actor. Worth checking out. Some of his 70s movies are superb. Now, one other person that's come back is David Warner. Of course, he was human in the last film, but that influence of God has changed him to a Klingon. Now, his character's name is Gorkin, but this is clearly a play on Gorbachev, and yet he looks a lot like Abraham Lincoln. Does this reference in the character, who is only in the movie's first act, does it work? Graham? Well, he's a great actor. Uh, that's all I can say. And, and, he, and he delivered his lines beautifully, and he was very, very regal in his approach. And, and I, yeah, I just liked him, but I didn't get that the reference to Gorkin being Gorbachev. I suppose he did look a bit like Abraham Lincoln, but I'm not sure what they were going for, what metaphor they were trying to, to do by combining Gorbachev and Abraham Lincoln as the founders of countries, I suppose. But nah, I just thought it was he was good. Um, I thought his death scene was excellent and well played. But yeah, I didn't get any of the underlying uh, meaning there at all. Okay, and the other thing with Warner, of course, he is one of the great post-war Hamlets. Not quite as good as that bard Richard Burton, but he is extremely good and very highly acclaimed. So Hamlet again comes back into it. Darren, what do you think on David Warner and his character? Yeah, I mean, it's great because Danny David Warner, he, he got to play a human and he also got to play a Cardassian and, and he's playing the Klingon here, so he... I personally like the fact that he uh, the Abraham Lincoln reference because his character he, he does sound like Gorbachev, but th there's enough Cold War metaphors throughout this film already. So to to me, sort of having like that same sort of character and, and going f for another historical figure where we're seen as someone who was bringing people together and having a sort of like an appeasing role in 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 history as 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 lincoln you know I, I think that worked you know really really well for, really well for me and the fact that he gets assassinated you can also put the analogy with um with lincoln or martin luther king or, or gandhi yeah. you know somebody who was he was killed because he was upsetting the status quo so you can add that element in there as well um, but yeah i i really like his 
character. I like his little sort of his little message with Kirk um, when he sort of is saying, you know, where where the where the two who are going to have to have the hardest time living through this new world. And he also, for me, has the best line in his film when he says to um, Spock, you can't appreciate um, Shakespeare until you've actually listened to it in its original Klingon tongue, which I think is awesome. Because it's a isn't, that what Christo- isn't that what Christopher Plummer says? And, and it says everything about Klingons, the fact that they're, they're not just conquering civilizations. Obviously, Shakespeare appeals to, to Klingon culture, but they can't accept it, but it's like a human thing. So in time, they've adopted um, Shakespeare as if he was one of theirs. I think that's quite, says a lot about their sort of culture without actually going too in-depth into it. I think it's quite a clever line. And Kirk actually gets a, gets a digging at, at Chang when, he's, when he makes a, a, a statement about needing um, breathing space and he, uh, he quotes Hitler. Yes. At him. I, think, I think that's, yes. <laughs> that's a cool little line. So then we come to the late great christopher Plummer, neil do you think he played his part as william shatner would do <laughs> i'm not sure about william shatner i thought he was absolutely fantastic he was a kind of william shatner thing he didn't really sort of follow the lead of his uh david warner character um he was very sort of uh snarky and um just sort of um slightly irritating to uh to everybody but yeah i thought he was uh, i thought he was absolutely excellent it was the he, he kind of stole every single scene he was in didn't he yeah i would agree darren with the exception of khan he, he might be my favorite villain from all the star trek films i think he's great i think the the eye patch that's bolted onto him instead of having a sort of band around him i think he's just so 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 macho and cling on it is it's great I never saw him as as playing Shatner, but his character to me was basically he was the um, he was the Klingon version of Kirk. You know that's how I always saw it, and you could see that. I mean, for example, in, in the banquet scene where they all sat across from each other, you've got um, Spock and Gorkin sat together, the appeasers, and then Kirk and um, and Chang are sat together, like you know, but, but you know, and they just the little banter bit, bit, bit between them you know Chang obviously knows how to um, push Kirk's buttons he, he says to him when he asks him if he's ready to give up Starfleet and Spock chimes in with this um, this line about oh it's always been about peace and he just does this little sort of um, like little shrug this like um, really and then like as Shatner starts to talk he like cuts him off he says you don't have to explain we both know each other we're, we're both me and you are the same and you can see that the um, when the first meet and everything that Chang he basically wants to fight Kirk. He, he wants to meet him in battle. I just think it's um, you know wonderful, you know p- performance. I, incidentally, just a, a little bit more, more trivia: Christopher Plummer and David Warner. They, had, they did actually reprise these roles. These um, a few years after these films, they um, there were a couple of PC computer games with um, the Star Trek ones, which had the original crew in where they you you would play the game and then you would get a bit more of the story in sort of like like a little sort of like um like a little film clip. And they did one called Klingon Academy, where you were a Klingon, you know, training to be be part of their navy as it was. And in between the the missions, Christopher Plummer and David Warner had a storyline going along, which actually acts as a um, as a prequel to this film. It's all about how Chang gets the illusion with the Klingons and how he comes up with his plot to cause war with the Federation. So that's on, that's on YouTube. And, but, and it's funny because you've got this like computer game. This in those days wasn't really sort of considered anything, you know, special and probably a little bit tacky. 
but you've got David Warner and um, Christopher Plummer in there, and they're great. They they they're giving it everything, you know. They're, they're actually sort of taking it seriously and really good, you know. So yeah, you know, it, but it's uh, you know, it's great that those characters were so light that they actually had a computer game built around them as well. Just a nice little tie-in that you've got. Graham, your thoughts on Christopher Plummer? Oh, I I thought he was stellar, and and he will he is actually my favourite Star Trek villain. I think I I would put him above Khan because he was full on. Klingon the whole time. Everything he did was just so Klingon. He was always into the role. You know, we talk now about method actors, but he really became John. He quoted Shakespeare in a in a Klingon perspective. You know, it was all Henry the Fifth and Richard the Third. And let's slip the dogs of war. And poor Shylock <laughs> from. Uh, the Merchant of Venice, you know, if you prick us, do we not bleed? And all of that stuff. And in the trial scene, he never stopped. He was just going for it, Kirk full on. And he really was the aggressor and he was in character the whole time. And I really uh, loved that whole thing. And the way he, he cornered Kirk in the uh, courtroom and then delivered the the final uh, blow was all so well done and then at the end when he realizes he's made his mistake he sort of just shrugs as as his ship explodes and you know goes down with the ship i i was stunned at it and i and again i come back to this point how did i miss it the first time it was so good yeah yeah it's interesting christopher Plummer and william shatner had a history going back to when they worked together on stage in canada in the 50s and it's a good history shatner was uh, christopher Plummer's understudy for a role that he's that right make. yeah oh yeah so they they go back a long long way wasn't it a shakespeare play as well it was a shakespeare play and just further on that story is Plummer had worked out all the moves worked everything out with the director and he had a, he got rushed to hospital. He had kidney stones. So Shatner had to go on every move that Plummer had arranged. Shatner did the opposite. <laughs> Deliberately did the opposite. And as Christopher Plummer said, he was bloody good as well. So there we go. So let's move on to another character. I understand the character of Valerius was meant to be Savic, and an approach was made to curse the alley. So Darren, what's the story behind this? The idea was that Savic was going to return. She was going to be the traitor. And so it was felt that this would basically give a lot more um, emotional weight to the, the betrayal. But they didn't want to bring back Robin Curtis because they didn't think that she had the acting ability to really pull this off. And also people, you know, fans by now, it's sort of, uh, of the two, Kirstie Alley was the, um, you know, was the favourite that people liked, so they went to her. But the problem was she was on Cheers, and at that point she was one of the uh, the highest-paid um, actresses in television. She wanted to be paid in line with that, and the, the fact is that the budget that they... But, you know, they, they had a, a lot less budget anyway, and so they... You know, they just weren't prepared to pay her for that, and they went with Kim Cattrall as well, who, was, who hadn't done it a lot, so obviously came at a lot cheaper. Uh, I, I mean, as it stands, I, I it, it would have been nice to have um, Savit back. It would have been interesting to have her a traitor, but it would, I, I don't think fans would have appreciated that because she was like a likable character, and to bring her back and be the, the traitor, it would have ended her character on a little bit of a sour note, so... I would have liked to have seen um, Kirstie Alley back in. I would have liked to have seen Kirstie Alley in Star Trek Three and Four, to be honest. 
I, I think I mean Valeris as, as a new character. What you know worked worked fine. Neil. Yeah, she was okay. I suppose she wasn't bad. I mean, it was it's she's she's okay. It's okay in this, but yeah, having this sort of silly smirk on her face is just just didn't seem to ring true i don't know why she was laughing she was her eyes seemed to be smiling the whole time i don't know if she could uh, couldn't believe her luck at landing at a big role these days that role could be played by pretty patel indeed absolutely and then sort of it gets more serious she she drops the smile um she drops the smirk rather um yeah i i don't know i'm not sure about kim control and in fact, you could again use Pretty Patel because she had dodgy dealings with foreign governments. Yeah, absolutely. Again, Darren, what do you think of Kim Cattrall's performance? Uh, I got to agree with Neil. I did think she smirked too much. She's not supposed to have emotions, is she? No, no, and uh, it's very rare I say this, but I agree completely with Neil. I've actually warmed to her performance. I didn't like it when I first saw it. A lot of people who play Vulcans, they play them as almost like robots we, we because they're logical mm. and we, without emotions, as if they can't have any personality. And that's wrong. At first start, Vulcans actually do have emotions. It's just they're always fighting to actually suppress them. That, that's the thing that, you know, and they sort of go for a more a, a logical viewpoint. But it's, it's actually sort of said a lot in the law that, you know, Vulcans do have emotions. They just they just try not to, to show them. And and throughout, you know, and, and I, th- I think she does bring a, a sort of, there's a little bit of cockiness to her, a little bit of arrogance that, you know, you would expect someone who was that intelligent to, to have, especially when she's around humans. I think her and, her and Spock have a great relationship. You know, with him as as a mentor, you know, I I I personally like her performance in there. But there's a little thing that she does with her character where, when she's found to be the traitor and she's asked who her conspirators are, she says, "I don't remember." And Spock says, "A lie." She goes, "No, a choice." And I love that because she's learnt from Spock. Spock's whole thing is how to get around the Vulcan no lie rule. You know, he does it instead by, by exaggerating or by, you know, by sort of like misremembering and think, all these little things. And she's learned that off him and then she throws it back at him. And I, and I love that. I, but I, yeah, I, I personally like the fact that she has a personality that she's sort of, you know, yeah, I, I do. I, I, I personally like her. I think there's, you know, a, a, a lot more to her compared to what a lot of the Vulcans that came after her from. I think she's like a, a really interesting character. She, When she actually is revealed to be a traitor, it feels right because we have these little hints of her being sort of like a little arrogant at times within this. And, you know, that's a bit like I say, I, I really do like the relationship with um, with her and Spock. And, and when she's caught, the look on Spock's face, the, you know, the hurt look of him and this sort of this brief moment when he knocks the phaser out of the hand with the anger. I, I think that's certain because you've sort of bought into them as having this mentor, mentor relationship. Graham? Um, I I saw it slightly different. I, did, I didn't enjoy her um, her performance much. I thought Spock was her mentor and she was always trying to, to sort of be seen to be good in his eyes but uh, underneath she was just out for everything she could get i did think she was a little bit wooden in the um in the performance and you know as darren says you know most people play them as robots she was uh, a little wooden in her and i just, it just she just didn't click with me it's probably more me than her but i just didn't get it i i thought there was an interesting a very interesting idea about 
Spock taking on somebody to bring up to be uh, the new Spock, as it were. I thought that was interesting, but I don't think she delivered it as an actress. I'm going to shock you all now and be a little bit controversial. Really? And Really? That's I, first. Yeah, and I, I want to set the scene on this carefully because I in no way want to cheat in what I'm about to say. So there's a sequence in the film where Valerius, having been exposed as the traitor, they need to get the information from her, and Spock does his you know, famous mind melt, which basically means putting his hands all over her. <laughs> and he draws that, he forcibly draws that information out of her. Now, when I first saw the film, I didn't think anything of that scene. Going back to it now, it played to me like a rape scene. And what was interesting is I went to the commentary track to hear what the screenwriter said about it. Now, you got to remember this commentary track was recorded in 2005. And the view of Nicholas Meyer at that time is he felt that scene was erotic, which concerned me when I heard it. Um, I've heard since in recent interviews, Nicholas Meyer has changed his mind completely on it. And he says, no, now it is a torture sequence and it is like waterboarding. I still don't think that's strong enough, but I understand where it's been changed and where modern perspectives are on that sequence, which I think is extremely controversial. Where is the peace conference? Darren, I make no apologies to you. I'm coming to you first on this to get your view on what I've just said. Yeah, um, I mean, it is it, it is it is called the uh, the mind rape scene. And, and I think Kim Cattrall is actually uh, was one of the earliest pers- uh, people to actually refer to it as such. And and apparently, because N- Nimoy and, and Cattrall, they actually spent a lot of time together, uh, you know, work, working on their, their performances. It really meant a lot to N- Nimoy that she get things right. And one of the things I think that they actually went for in this scene was they wanted to make it clear that this was a violation. That, that what he was doing was sort of you know a, a shocking, not a physical rape as such, but it was a, you know, a a violation that this was something against her will, and her reaction is of of shock and horror and, and pain. So that is that you know to me that is what they were going for, and also it's not just them, but the um the people round who are watching, like Uhura and Scotty especially, the the distress on their faces, they really really you know what that what they're seeing is something horrific it, you know it's you know she's been you know for for whatever for whatever reason you know whatever justification she's been taken advantage of and and, and violated and that and i think that is the concept what we're going for and it was like you say you mentioned waterboarding and and this is basically like a, this is effectively a torture scene it's you know it's the 21st century version of waterboarding but it shows that the lengths that spock at this point is 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 willing to go through to for them to bring bring peace to, to stop this assassination and i think nowadays it probably raises more because we've actually seen this in guantanamo bay and, and the things that have happened since this probably sort of strikes more with us now than it would have done back then but certainly i have to say as well i saw Mayer's interview when he when he referred to the scene as erotic, I thought that was that was disturbing that he saw it in that way because to me to me it is like you know a, a, a mind rape as, as of on some level and for him to say that I, I yeah that that disturbed me. Well, two things there. One, 
you know, I, I, I pretty much dismissed a lot of Kim Cattrall's performance. Like Neil, I said she was smug. I did think in, in this particular sequence, her acting was superb. But also waterboarding isn't physical contact. You know, you you are putting a cloth over. I don't sort of go into the description of what is a horror, horrific torture, but you don't physically touch people. In this, he was physically touching her, and that again is more akin to a rape than a torture. And he's and he's looking into her eyes as well, and you can almost see in her eyes she's yes. almost pleading for him to stop. It, it is a disturb. Yeah. It, it is a disturbing scene, but like I say, I think that is what they 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 were going through. But yeah, I think it is. One of the most shocking things, if you sort of you know watch it carefully, it is probably one of the most shocking things you will get in at least the Star Trek movies up to you know that that we got. Yeah, and and the thing going back to it now is how much more disturbing I find it, and I sort of dismissed it when I sort of first saw the film as yeah you know, part of the plot, but it is extremely disturbing, and I think it just shows how attitudes have changed in the last thirty years. So I thought that was really good. Neil? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about the rape or the mind rape, but, yeah, it is disturbing. We've seen him do the um, the mind meld thing on um, Kirk, I think it was, and, and you see them recoil when they when he's had, he's finished. And, yes, going in and then doing going further and then adjusting his fingers and going even further. Yes, that was very disturbing, especially as to the lengths he would go because he knew that she was clever and intelligent that she probably hidden this stuff down that deep deep down in her memory um that he thought he had to do that but he it, yeah the horror is uh, on the, the horror's face yeah and at the end of the process you watch him and, and as darren said staring into his eyes but also they're saying the same thing at the same time mm. so he was a powerful influence dominating the kim cattrall character which yeah. again as disturbing domestic I think I think there was a bit of irritation uh, uh, anger in his in his actions that she'd um, she'd Which been again, so great and then violent. suddenly he let him let him down hugely yeah but again that's controlling and domestic violence mm, yeah yeah Graham um I thought this was an excellent excellent scene and the reason why I thought it was so good is not because of what was happening on screen but what was happening in my head so when I saw it originally I just thought what he did is he stuck his hand on her face and he just hoovered the information up you know it was just like I'll just suck suck the information out of her and off we go now you look at it with 21st century eyes how we've changed good grief mm. as a people uh, and as human beings how we observe this so the all of the horrible connotations of he's he's her mentor he's in a position of authority he's in a position of power he's subjugating her um and subjugating her will and going into her most personal and private thoughts and pulling information out that he will then use okay for good he will use them for good but it doesn't negate the fact that he's actually performed a horrible torture on this young woman and mm. it's like you go oh wow that's that's changed and that's made that a bit unpleasant and i thought it was very much more interesting from how how much we've advanced as a species well some of us have i'm not sure about everyone but yeah it, it that aimed at me <laughs> even you, Jeff. Even you. Yeah. He was also her sponsor at the academy. Yeah, yeah, and that's so that authority 
uh, he had over and that level of control. Uh, basically, Spock uh, misused it. Okay, you know, that was obviously a, an important plot point to get out uh, who the uh, other co-conspirators were. But even so, it's an uncomfortable watch in the 21st century. Neil, I'll hand over to you for something like that. At the end, there is a sign-off where all the actors signed film at a cost of $85,000. Was it worth it? Did the moment carry emotion? Can I turn that on you first, Neil, because you said you didn't like the end. Is that what you didn't like? Well, yeah, I mean, it was all rushed. They rush in, they kill the bad guy, conveniently comes down with his gun and everybody claps them. They got to two hours and thought, right, we haven't got any time left or any money, let's just bang, 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 let's do it quickly. And that was it. There was no sort of, oh, obviously Kirk, who has been the bad guy, killed the ambassador. Oh, no, he's okay, he's he's fine. So, no, I find that all very rushed and, and was a bit of a... A bit of a, a, a an unfortunate ending, let's say. Yeah, it was rushed and slow at the same time. So we had that long, long, quite intense build-up with the guy cutting the hole in the glass to get the gun to point through, and that seemed to be all building up and building up. And then, yes, everything just whiz, whiz, whiz at the end, and bang, the the gangs back together again were, were the heroes of the day and all of this sort of stuff. Yeah, it did seem a little rushed at the end, but... It had the right conclusion, and I did like them all signing the film at the end. I thought that was nice. And the, the fact that they got some cash for it, well done them. Yeah. I'm going to go Darren first. Darren. I mean, I, I quite like the ending anyway, because I think that the, the main battle was getting past Chan and getting to the oh. um, getting to the, uh, the conference on time to stop the assassination. I don't think... I think that was the, the main climax. I don't think you needed another big battle on top of that. It was basically get there in time and, and stop him. So I'd find that. As for the actual, the, the autographs at the, the end, I, I thought that was a great way to, to send off. Because it, for a start, it, it really sort of specified that this is it. This is the end. Because this is actually, if you think about it, it's actually breaking the fourth wall. Because it's not showing the character's name. It's not showing Sulo and Chekhov. It's showing the actor's name. And I think it's it's wonderful. This really said to me, this is this is literally them signing off. We're, you know, we're, we're done. And I, I think it's 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 uh, it's a wonderful. At the time, I don't think it had been done before. I know um, Avengers did the same thing with Endgame. But at the time, it, it was great. It was just like, you know, it felt, really felt, this is it. This is the end. And, and even now when I watch it, the, the music gives me goosebumps but one thing i'll say though and i always laugh is it's got this great music in each one and then it gets to shatner and the music just goes up a notch and it then and it waits till shatner's on to and it, but it waits as well till shatner's on to play the star trek theme and so it's like the very last the very final film with all them together the very last second it was shatner just sort of putting his thing i'm the star that, that to me is how it came across. It's just that, that last little thing. Obviously, he had to be the last person there, but that little little sort of burst of music and, and saving the Star Trek theme for him as opposed to playing it throughout the whole thing. It just felt it just felt that little that little last shot of ego there. I, I just always find that a little bit funny. And didn't you think it was ironic? Because that's the that's the rest of their lives attending Star Trek conferences and signing their names. That's what they're going to be doing after this. Yes, and, yes and, that was. And, and making a good living doing that. You know, honestly, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, 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 you know, they, they, they pretty much created 
the, the convention circuit because you know you, you didn't have anything before, yeah. before that you, you know star wars or any of those didn't do it they were the ones that brought it now everybody sell their photos with autographs and the signing so they pretty much pioneered that oh, so you're saying it's product placement is that yeah <laughs> well anything yeah. to add graham no no that was just my 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 final thought i'm i'm like darren i thought it, it was clever i hadn't spotted the the, the james t kirk surge in the music i'm going to go back and just have a look i know i know like i say it also that's... plays the original theme when he's on as well so you know just just watch it it's 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 there oh don't you just want to punch him i mean come on you're a grown man get over it he does actually acknowledge his ego in the film because the bit where there's two Kirks, he actually says to himself, um, I can't believe I kissed you. And he replies, must have been your lifelong ambition. Yeah, absolutely. I love that bit. There was a bit of a worry that uh, he wouldn't say those lines, but Shatner embraced it. He thought it was extremely funny and went along with it. Yeah, so two things. One, picking up on the music point. If you go back and watch any epic film or big film from the 50s and 60s and just watch the opening credits, and you'll notice the crescendo reached when the composer's name come up on screen. Huh. So it was a very <laughs> deliberate policy back in the day. The second is this uh, sign-in at the end and the $85,000. Again, I was listening to a commentary track from 2005 between Maya and Finn, and each one said, try to put the blame on the other one for that extra expense. And, well, why did you come up with that idea? So, well, I didn't, you did. And then they both worked it out and they said, Oh, no, it was Leonard Nimoy that had come up with this because all Nicholas Meyer wanted was to have a book on screen and they signed the book, which would be quite cheaply, you know, quite cheap to film. But Nimoy said, no, that's not big enough. And, yeah, they worked it out in this argument between themselves. It was neither of them. It was Leonard Nimoy that did it. Nice one. I thought it was quite an emotional ending for that. I mean, the the disappointment of the ending of the film. But, yeah, it was quite an an emotional sort of uh, finish, wasn't it? This really is the end. Course heading, Captain. Second start of the ride. And straight on till morning. Both James Horner and Jerry Goldsmith turn down the chance to come back. Cliff Eidelman takes on the duty and creates something between Holst Planet Suite and John Williams. Your thoughts on the music, Jeff? Well, yes, it's quite interesting. Horner turned it down on the basis that I've outgrown Star Trek. Why do I need to come back? Just because you're about to make something called Titanic in a couple of years, James. (laughs) (laughs) Jerry Goldsmith had such a bad experience on Star Trek V, working with Shatner and the film itself failed, that it it took a couple of movies to persuade him to come back. So they were looking around for somebody that would fill that void. And in the meantime, Meyer had temp-tracked the whole thing with the Planet Suite. And he didn't want to use it because at that time it was still in copyright. So Eidelman come in, which is why if you listen to the main credits and then go and listen to Mars from the Planet Suite, you'll find a number of remarkable similarities. But I think as it went on, it became much more of an adventure score. And I think it's not bad. But I would add that of the six films to this point, the two best films have the weakest music scores. That's four and six. Whereas for all my complaints about the others, the Goldsmith and Horner scores are fantastic. Graham? 
Uh, well, Jeff ruined this, the music for me completely because he said, oh, it's the, it's the planets. And that's all I could bloody hear when it was going on. And, you know, I was going, oh, that's Mars. Now there's Jupiter. Oh, good. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch it, watch it again now. <laughs> exactly. And I was going, and I was trying to work out, you know, oh, the, the, the planets was written between 1914 and 1916. Oh, I should point out to anybody listening. Holtz's museum, the, the the original composer of the of the Planet Suite, is in Cheltenham. So he's a bit of a local local boy. So we all know a, a lot about him. So he wrote that in, and I was trying to think: is that out of copyright? Is that not out of copyright? But anyway, the the music is sort of lost its appeal because you're putting it next to this sort of masterpiece, and then you have this rip off. So yeah, thanks thanks Jeff for that, mate. Need to help. <laughs> <laughs> Darren. I love the music on this one. It's got like a really nice adventure theme to it, but it's also got this like foreboding menace about it. The, 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 the bit where the Klingon ship arrives for the first time, it's got this like, you know, this, like I said, I'll say it again, really foreboding, you know, dramatic thing as it sort of comes in. It, it works perfectly with um, Kirk when he makes a statement, I've never been this close before. I personally really, really like this score. It's, it's sort of, you know, dr- dramatic. The, the, the battle scene is, you know, later is sort of like, you know, is is really good. Uh, yeah, I, I, I personally like I mean, I would say apart from Rafa Khan, it might be um, might be my favourite one. But then again, I'm, I'm not a massive connoisseur of um of music, but it um, you know to to me it fits the mood and the um and the drama and the tension perfectly. I really like it. Uh, at the time of release, Next Generation was a big TV hit. What nods are there to that in this film? What did screenwriter Finn wanted to do to hand over at the end of the movie? Basically, Finn did not know Star Trek when he came on board this project. So the education he got was to be sat in a room for a day and the other five films were screened for him at Universal. So that was it. That was his education. And he's working with Maya, who told him what law and what he couldn't couldn't use. So his original ending was when they'd finished, you know, Kirk would take the keys out of the ignition or whatever it would be in the 23rd century and hand it to Picard, who walk on the bridge. And then they pointed out to him, well, actually, he couldn't do that. It's a 160-year difference or something. <laughs> what I really liked as someone who was getting into Next Generation at the time is that it, it bridges the gap a little between the two series because one of the elements of the TV series is that the Federation and the Klingons are at peace. You've even got a Klingon on the Enterprise. So this shows, this was kind of a little bit of a handover where it just sort of showed you that first step towards peace. So it just sort of like, you know, tied in with, with that element of it as well. And there's also a um, an episode in Next Generation that aired um, a few weeks before um, this film actually came out, was a two-parter where they had Spock in it. And the story of the, the film was that Spock would go rogue and bring peace between the Romulans and the Vulcans. Picard's the one who has to go and try and, you know, about to make contact with him. And when he has a confrontation with Picard, Spock says the reason why he's gone rogue is that he, once before he interfered in affairs between the Federation and the Klingon, and it's something he regretted and put the uh, the crew at risk and so that was just a little tease before the uh, this film came out so that tied in quite nicely as well uh, but there's also there's lots of references throughout this about handing over um, to a new generation you know Spock makes mention that he's got the fall of paradise picture in his room but it's a reminder that all things end and and at the end um, 
Kirk's speech, he mentions how they turn over the uh, the Enterprise to a new crew, and he just does one little subtle thing at the at the end when he's saying that this new crew will boldly go, and then he pauses and he says, "No one has gone before," and that's the difference between um, obviously in the TV series it always used to be no man has gone before, and that a next generation they basically adopted back to no one has gone before. So him saying that, it's just that little final handing over to the next generation. It's just that, you know, just a little sort of thing that, you know, that they they are now Star Trek. They're, they're having on the adventures. So I think it is it is a nice little handover to um, the, the next generation for, for all these little things that they, that they do on there as well. Graham? Apart from Worf, I didn't really get, much of it in this this show i mean i i did like the way it ended you know and that the old crew were, were actually coming to a natural end i did think wharf playing his grandfather or the same actor that plays wharf in the new generation playing his grandfather was quite fun not that that's ever happened before in any other film <laughs> i liked the fact that it was an ending and then that the the new generation start fresh uh, and i thought they ended on a high good film nice final scene everybody gets to sign their name and we're out of here off we go it was dedicated to gene roddenberry who didn't like it was it fair to do that i'm gonna go with you uh, graham well i don't like gene roddenberry i think he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's held back i mean his initial idea was great yeah yeah wagon train in space off we go but he has caused so many problems throughout Star Trek that, um, you know, we could really have done without him. So, again, this might have been another piece of the, yeah, let's draw a line under this, dedicated to Gene Roddenberry. That'll keep him happy. Off we go. He had died when this was in production. i <laughs> point that out. Is that right? Yes. Well, he said he didn't like it. Well, he did see a rough cut. And no, he, 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 he died two weeks after seeing the, fil- the, the film. Yeah. So oh. yeah. he hated it that much. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a hell of a critic's comment, isn't it? Yeah. Anyone else anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I think it was just it was right that after he passed that the next film that we actually dedicated to him. It's not as if they, they, they were saying that he endorsed this this film by having that. It was just basically paying respect to the person who set the whole thing off. I mean, like Graham, I personally don't have a lot of time for Roderick. I respect that he basically started the whole thing, but all the problems that he caused with the films, I mean, every film, I don't think any of the films he he liked, he it was basically reduced to a um, an advisory role. And he and, and in Next Generation that he had to start with, what he was basically in charge of, he caused so many problems. I mean, there were, there apparently were writers like quitting, like left, right, and centre. All these rules that he brought in um, were, were really restricting the creativity of, of what the show. I think Star Trek did for you know for um, it did actually get better after he passed away because there was just so much more freedom that they had. But I think it was it was right to pay tribute to him on that. But, you know, I, I don't think it's disrespectful. It just, I think there would have been a lot, if they had, had the film and not actually acknowledged his passing or dedicated, I think there would have been more of a backlash. Where as it stands, it was just, we're just paying respect to your memory. No, I think it's right to put it up there. I mean, without Gene Roddenberry, there'd be no Star Trek. And despite all the problems he caused and his general dislike of the films that went on, you know, he was always going to be remembered for this and not any of the other TV series he'd been involved in before Star Trek. So, yeah, Wagon Train in Space, 
um, but also a representation of Kennedy and what Kennedy was trying to do mm -hmm. on a, if you like, a universal tableau. So I, I think it's right to, to, to give him his due. I think it's interesting that um, your point about Kennedy. Kennedy was responsible for two phenomenal um, or influenced two phenomenal science fiction franchises. One was Star Trek, the other one was Dune, of course, because Frank Herbert said that he was terrified when he saw Kennedy speak because he was so eloquent and so charismatic and he thought this man could destroy the world. Frank Herbert was around today. There's nothing to fear on that score. Okay, so summing up, what do you think of the film and what moments stood out for you, Neil? Yeah, I mean, I I didn't know what this was going to be like. I had no idea. I hadn't seen it before. Um, so and yeah, you had to be dragged chicken and screaming to watch it. Yeah, yeah. So surprisingly better, I guess. Surprisingly, it was the even number, wasn't it? So it was bound to have a <laughs> better than the uh, the odd numbers. The plot works. Um, there's a genuine fear that they'll be killed towards the end in the, the beginning of the third act, and I thought the ending was rushed. But otherwise, yeah, very good. Excellent. Graham? Yeah, I think it's probably the most complete of the Star Trek films. I think it's got an excellent villain. Villain. It's got a good plot. It's got a, a central mystery as well. The team are back together again. They all get something to do. Sulu gets promoted to captain. has got his own ship. I liked that. It's got a good, clear, sensible ending, if a little bit rushed. Apart from the music, I really, really enjoyed this one. And I really, the scene that stood out for me is the mind rape, because what it said about us now as people is very, very interesting. And so I, I give it two thumbs up. I thought it was great. Darren? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the perfect send off, um, as well as getting to say goodbye to the crew. You, you basically feel that they've made history one last time. And as the line goes, only Nixon could go to China. There's only really the, the original crew that could set in motion the uh, the path to peace with, with the Klingons. And I just think there's so many clever metaphors in there. Just so many great scenes, you know, the, the uneasiness of the, of, the, uh, of the Klingon and the, uh, the crew sat across from each other at dinner. The absolute of the horror that Kirk is actually a prisoner of the Klingons, just like that sinking that he's at their mercy and on trial before them. I mean, that just... You know, that, that, you know, as any Star Trek fan scene, that would probably have chills. Um, I, I just think it's a, a great goodbye and a great adventure story to, to boot. And I think this, this to me is the proper send off to the, uh, to the original Star Trek. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's the most realised, the most cinematic mm. of the six films to date. Not the best. I think that goes to Star Trek Four, but I, I do think that. And it was also uh, uh, the last film that Maya worked on as well. So it was his end to that. I'm writing that, Darren, aren't I? Making that sweeping statement there. Uh, yeah, this was the last, um, you know, the last uh, influence he had on Star Trek. Yeah. So, yeah, so, uh, yeah, for Nicholas Meyer, also the end. We move on. And indeed, that brings us to the end of phase one of our ongoing Star Trek movie features. Phase two will begin in a couple of months with Star Trek Generations, in effect, a crossover between the two series. In the meantime, let's boldly go where no man or Neil has gone before. No one has gone before. No, it's no man, Graham. Let's get it right, okay? It was good enough in the 60s. It's good enough now. Anyway, let's move on. Let's play out with some music. Let's have some of 
Cliff Eidelman score, and you decide, is this Holtz Planet Suite? Take it away. 